influence. Okay, thank you, Fiona. And uh, as Fiona said, if I start to trail off and you can't hear me above uh, the air conditioning, do wave and say speak up because I sometimes trail off a bit uh, uh, during the uh, presentations. I'm afraid the screen's slightly small. Um, hopefully, some of my slides are a little bit uh, detailed, but um, do again tell me if you can't read it. I'll tell you what it says. I think we're going to circulate though the slides afterwards, so you'll have them. And then one or two references there to links you might want to follow up afterwards for publications. Um, I suppose um, just a bit about background, Fiona gave you the outlines there. I worked in, until last year, um, government for 34 years. Uh, um, and I worked mainly on, initially, on unemployment issues in the 1980s, on youth unemployment and adult un unemployment, uh, and more recently on education issues and particularly within the Department for Education on children's services issues, social care, children going into care and adoption as well as prior to that on issues like teachers. So that's primarily my experience. I also briefly worked on civil service reform in the 1990s which in the Cabinet Office. Um, but my main role has been as a social researcher and I was joint head um, of the Government Social Research Service which covers around a thousand uh, social researchers, social scientists uh, economists, sociologists, etc., who um, work within government departments, uh, across most departments, uh, doing research, commissioning research, interpreting research, and trying to um, persuade policy colleagues and ministers to um, absorb the messages of research. So there are a lot of analogies there, and I'm afraid the social uh, research service doesn't really include historians, and, because formally they're most, although economic historians come within the ESRCs, they're not normally defined as social scientists, which is perhaps a pity. But the issues are very much the same in terms of getting people, persuading them that evidence is useful, but also um, the task is, is how um, we can draw out for them the key messages and how it can be used. The bad news is, I suppose, after 34 years, I still don't fully understand how the policy process works. It's sometimes quite a mystery. Um, so being absolutely involved in it day to day, as I was just saying to Rachel, um, doesn't necessarily mean you have a very clear understanding of the process. And now I've left uh, government, I suppose I've got the luxury of standing back. Um, but it doesn't always, it's not always the same. I mean, it changes quite a lot. So it's quite difficult to really get to grips with what it's about. But I'm going to try and explain that to you as, from my point of view, and, and quoting a few other people who have looked at this as well. And then Rachel is going to give you a more concrete example of Treasury uh, policy making in the Treasury. Uh, and also I'm going to say briefly how you might seek to influence it as historians. Um, this is the classic, if you look at the Treasury Green Book, which is the Bible, particularly for government analysts and economists, including economists, on how to develop um, and review policy. This is the, um, the policy cycle as set out in the Treasury Green Book. Um, it's seen as a process working through the rationale from the policy, for the policy to the objectives, appraising those, um, the objectives to see if they're achievable, and appraising the particular way you were seeking to achieve that, monitoring the implementation, the bit where I spent a lot of my career on evaluating policies to see if they're actually achieving their objectives and then feed the feedback loop going back to the rationale. And it's easy to um, um, find fault in this method, but actually it is a very good analytical method of unpicking what policies are meant to be about. And what's interesting is although it's drawn as a sort of cycle from rationale to objectives, Often, if you're working in government, what you start with is probably the objectives. So you're a policymaker. We want to do this, but your rationale is not very clear. Why do you want to do that? 
Uh, and quite often, sadly, as someone involved in the evaluation, when it comes to, Richard, we want to evaluate, we want you to evaluate this for us, design an evaluation, it's only at that point when you say, well, what were the objectives then that I can evaluate, they, they actually, it forces people to articulate those. So surprisingly, perhaps, all the objectives of policies are not actually always articulated. They're often a response to events or other um, impetuses. So what the policy is about, are often not clearly articulated. It's only when we get to the evaluation stage that we start to think, so what was this for then, so we can measure it? And even more so, the rationale, because it's a really good discipline to say, well, what's the role of government here? Why should government get involved in this? Is it actually going to do more harm than good? And that's more prominent under some governments than others. Some are much more interventionist in tone. All governments are interventionist on something at some point, particularly in a crisis, as we've seen recently about dredging and stuff like that. Um, but often it's quite hard, and sometimes the objectives are not really in line with the rationale. Uh, so you have to sort of unpick this. So it's a very good logical process for developing policy, but leaves out most of the politics. And this is one of the big criticisms that have been made by various critics. Um, a, a sort of, um, not an absolute criticism, but uh, it's a very interesting paper by Michael Hallsworth and some of his colleagues at the Institute for Government called Policy Making the Real World. And I would, it's good, it's online, have a look at it. It, it describes, it's based on lots of research with policymakers. It's a really good uh, um, and fairly brief read about the policy process. So I, I recommend following it up. So it criticizes the Romes cycle. Um, it says it follows on rationally from the pre each stage moves on rational, the rational process, rationale is developed, objectives are set, then options are praised. And it represents policy making as a controllable sequence where the government, in quotes here, I don't know why, produces a policy that addresses a clear goal. Um, and the policy represents a set of planned actions that are implemented in a cool, logical way. But the thing about this is, as you see, it's very technocratic. It's not really quite how the real world is. It may be how um, maybe analysts and some policymakers would like the real world to be, um, but it mostly leaves out the politics, which is a bit of a, an oversight when you're talking about what is an essentially a political process which is driven by beliefs and values and democracy. These ministers are elected, we have to remember that. They are, you know, it's not the role of technocrats to decide these things. They're meant to help, but they're not the decision makers. And often the politics in this model is seen as sort of external irritant sometimes, a noise, troublesome, stops a clear managerial process of policy making from working as it should. Um, so that's probably, it's somewhat unfair to criticise the, the Romeff model because it's not necessarily aiming to describe the political process, it's after the political process it comes in. But that's a, if you just look at the Romeff process as an explanation of how policies work, you're not really getting the complete story. So again, the quote from Michael Holsworth, um, the stages model that you've seen there in my first slide represents a naive view, he says, of policy making. Um, some of those things are very good. Actually, the Romeo cycle was developed by a former boss of mine, Pam Meadows, in the committee, an economist. Um, so I'm not going to critique it. It has a lot of value. But its suggestion that policy can be made through a series of logical, sequential steps with a clear beginning and an end and a fight within a finite period is a dangerous over oversimplification. Um, strong words. Talking about research, um, when we, I'm often, have been often asked to ask about to talk about how research can have an impact, social research. This is the classic model that kind of is the equivalent of that Romer cycle for research. Where, sorry about the, uh, the graphics, you have the original research. This is actually uh, drawn from an American article, which I'll come to in a moment. Um, you have the original research that finds a bright idea. Um, it's appraised by people like me in departments, by policymakers, others, to see if that research is valid and whether it's leading to a useful policy idea. Um, you might, if it comes up with particular proposals, 
you might do a, an evaluation of a pilot or trial. That's the kind of role that I and my colleagues used to play. You, div you try it out to see good experimental designs, similar to medical research. You run a pilot, see if you get the results that uh, the research suggested um, the uh, initiative would get. You then feed that back into a decision-making process. If it works, you might implement that uh, um, particular idea. Um, you might, uh, the decision-making there by policymakers, ultimately by ministers, you might then monitor, if you're going to implementation, you'd want to monitor it to see it really was and, and when you rolled it out fully, having the effects it, it, uh, it intended, and then that feedback loop, well, if you maybe either it wasn't actually working or you need to change things, you'd feedback back and change things. Very simple, technocratic process. Um, does happen, um, but doesn't really give you the whole picture. This is more, this, William Gormley is an American uh, education researcher, and this is based on his experience in the States, with a bit of a uh, few amendments by me to reflect the British context. This was a, a study he did, um, particularly asking ministers and officials in uh, America about the influence of research and other factors on their decision making. Uh, and so you have research on the far left there, and the percentage figures are the number of ministers or the number of times, I can't quite remember, probably the number of times that ministers mentioned research as a key influence on their policy making and their decisions. Research as such only figured in 15% of cases, whereas interest groups, not surprisingly, featured in a third of cases. Of course, research probably was featuring more than that because it's filtered through all these other routes that you see in this rather complicated diagram here because research has to often work through picking up people picking up ideas, the media for, for good or ill, uh, interest groups particularly, uh, think tanks, political parties, think tanks influencing political parties, and then the great, uh, the great public opinion uh, forum in which the public will um, say, yes, we should do something about that or react against something. But the point of this diagram is to show often that the original message of the research gets somewhat lost or transformed in the translation. So what may eventually come through, which may or may not have been based on research, often is not necessarily what the research really says. And I guess that must also apply to quite a lot of historical uh, research, myths about the past. We think the past was like that. Uh, we react in a certain way, but actually it's a stereotype or oversimplification of, of the past. And often policymakers are, they have a notion of the past, but it's a kind of folk notion. It's not really based necessarily on solid, solid evidence. Um, I think Rachel's going to say something about events. That's uh, uh, Harold Macmillan's apocryphal phrase. He apparently didn't say this. This was in response, allegedly, to a reporter who asked him in that kind of very uh, sycophantic way that reporters used to have in Macmillan's time. Um, about pre-Profumo uh, pre events. Um, so, Prime Minister, what did you find the most challenging thing when you worked in, uh, when you were Prime Minister? And he's famously supposed to have said, events, dear boy, events. And that's still very much true. Politicians have to respond to events. As you've seen from the uh, Cameron's response to the, uh, the floods recently, they have to be seen to act. And a lot of the things are just totally unexpected. They have to be seen and have to do things. So often, however careful the policy process is, careful development of policies, what politicians need to do is actually respond and provide leadership during crises. So what eventually comes out of the sausage machine at the end of the day may be very different uh, to what went into it in terms of facts and evidence because it's been through the mill of public opinion, pressure groups and so forth. And so the policy may be significantly transformed, if not completely changed, as a result of that. 
This diagram is also showing that a lot depends on circumstances of economic and social conditions. One good example of that in, in education policy is around early years policy where some years ago, 20 years ago, over the last 10 years, it was the right time to introduce um, free early, uh, early years childcare for three and four year olds uh, because there was more money about basically economic conditions that would demand for it and there was more money in the economy to allow it. In other circumstances, possibly in current circumstances, it may be much more difficult to get fundamental social changes underway because of the constraints on public expenditure. Though conversely, you could also argue if you want to introduce benefit reforms that take a harsher line with benefit recipients, actually it's easier to do that in recession when there's more popular support possibly. Sadly, there's probably always popular support for restricting benefits, but it's kind of easier to sell that policy as a politician to do it when, t when money is seen as constrained. So political and economic uh, uh, social conditions. That's no surprise to you as historians, I'm kind of telling you the obvious. Actually, it's quite surprising sometimes to other social scientists who tend to sometimes leave the politics out of this and forget that these are all done, all these things are done in a context and you have to take that into account. For historians, I guess that's an absolute truism, but it's less obvious, surprisingly less obvious to, to many other social scientists, which I always, uh, as a sociologist, I always find very, as a political sociologist originally, I always find very strange that people forget that bit. Moving on, um, this is a fairly absurd chart from the Wellcome Trust. This, this sadly, um, is on their website to uh, try and tell um, scientists how they can influence policy. So, <laughs> only connects, right? Um, obviously, it's nonsense. It's, uh, everything connects, therefore nothing connects. It, it leaves you none the wiser. But it kind of is trying to explain the complexity of the policy process and in the green boxes, all those influences. But really, it's like that famous chart the um, Americans had of the... the Iraqi war and how all the different actors and, and key players and stakeholders interacted in the Iraqi war. It's famously lampooned in the press, wasn't it? And all these arrows pointing in all directions, which made it totally meaningless. So don't worry about that. Um, it's not quite as difficult as that, but that gives you an idea that there are a number of key players involved. This is from the uh, uh, report by the Institute for Government. Um, they interviewed a number of senior policy people. This is the kind of uh, hard-bitten civil servant uh, realist. Um, a senior policy official, pointing out that policies are ultimately about choices, about values, about decisions, and all the political factors that politicians rightly have to bear in mind. Um, they need a consensus, they need a degree of support to move forward, but it's important that they don't annoy really key interests and alienate them, and importantly, they don't alienate the entire public, the electorate. Um, so you can put lots of evidence into the uh, process, historical evidence, social science evidence, economic evidence, um, other types of scientific evidence, but you don't necessarily get the right answer coming out. There's a much more complex process going on, obviously. Uh, policy making um, uh, for evidence does help. It's not pointless. It does help to narrow down the choices and to make clear the pros and cons and the costs and consequences of to some degree of various actions, what's more likely or less likely to work, and most importantly, what it will cost and the payback period. Um, but ultimately, politicians are elected to make decisions. That's not for civil servants. They advise, but politicians have to make the difficult choice. And I have tremendous respect for politicians. Often they're lampooned for this. But actually, it is a matter of hard decisions and balancing interests and moving forward where you can and also spotting where there are opportunities, but where sometimes at some points it's just not possible. And again, as historians, I'm sure you'll understand that. At some points, it's not possible to do something. At other points, the options close down because the political balance of forces has changed. The, the coalition shows some of the things that have been possible on, um, for example, free school meals for all under sevens and possibly rolling that out. 
I think it was only because you've got the coalition, the balance of interest there, that you've got a policy like that going forward at the moment. Um, other areas of, of early years policy. Benefit reform, perhaps that shows a different balance of forces. But you can only, there are times and opportunities to do things, uh, and another time that door will close. So the hard bit realist there, ultimately you can have lots of evidence, but politicians have to decide. But Gormley, in his article, um, which I thought was a very good description, the, the process, the American policy process, and there are a few things that I've left out of this chart that only really relate to America, the difference with the, um, the conflicts between the Senate and the House of Representatives, for example, the difficult process in the states of getting anything done and anything through government, which we don't quite have to the same degree, fortunately, here. So I've left that out. But these are things, really, he's saying um, things that are um, that researchers or historians, those producing responsible for evidence, um, can do to improve the effect, the, more, the likelihood that their evidence will have some influence. Um, so on the left, the left-hand column is the, the sorts of uh, factors. On the right-hand column is the, that's really rating the degree to which it's controllable, it's in your hands that you can actually control um, the effects. So comprehensibility sounds blindingly obvious. You have to have clear, clear crisp messages. Often, it's difficult for us to make those messages clear because that, we've seen that as simplifying, sometimes grossly simplifying what we're trying to say. But you do need to make sure you've got reduce what you're trying to say down to the absolute essence of what, the, what you're trying to put over and not complicate it because politicians, others won't listen to that. They've got important other things to do. So if it's wrapped up in a lot of methodological constraints and methodological caveats, that's not really going to sell it too heavily. But on the other hand, you need, if there are important methodological constraints, you still need to put those across, but you need to tone the message. And classically, in the academic world, you tend to state how, you know, the, res the, the, the problems with your work initially, the methodology, all the, the, the caveats first, before you get onto the policy message. In a policy-making context, you have to reverse that. You're never going to get ministers' attention by saying, well, I've got this sort of bit of research. It's, it's not, you know, it only adds marginally to knowledge. I'm not too sure. There are under methodological constraints. They, they've gone to seat. They've switched off. They've left the room at that point. You've got to engage, particularly ministers, in the first two or three minutes, uh, 30 seconds to be frank, just to actually engage their interests as to why they should listen to the rest of it and then your chance at the end of that to state some of the methodological caveats that they need to be aware of. Um, so it's quite different to some academic discourses. So that is controllable, I think. It's difficult art. Credibility, the rigour of the method, very important that it will stand up to scrutiny, and that should be within your control, our control. Trust, that's quite a key issue. Are you someone who's seen as an authoritative figure who provides, has provided solid advice, is reliable, is not maverick, is not just trying to grab headlines? So it takes time to build trust, inevitably. And so the uh, academics, generally, who are used most by government have built that relationship. Um, you can say there are some compromises there that you may have doubts about, but actually they're seen as trusted, authoritative people who are not pushing a particular line, but actually will weigh up the evidence carefully. So that's an important thing. And it's difficult if you're not already, have, you know, it's a question of connections there as well to have the opportunity to build that trust. The quality of the legislative debate, not really controlled by, by people producing evidence on the whole, but in debates about whether you should do something or not, the failure to rebut false um, assertions, uh, I don't know if dredging or whatever is a recent one, dredging the, the, the rivers, you know, um, it was quite a while before people said, well actually dredging is not the cure-all solution, it was something the media and some politicians grabbed hold of, oh yes, dredging, that's the solution, but actually the environment of agency eventually said, well, no, it only works in some cases, you know, so 
um, but that, you know, that sort of thing, unless you um, repudiate those or, or clarify those sorts of myths quite quickly, um, they can take a life of their own in, in, in uh, public opinion and public discourse. Okay. Economic conditions, as I've already said, uh, are the conditions favorable to introducing a piece of uh, reform? And then scholarly consensus, the absence of any scholarly consensus, fundamental disagreement amongst scholars, frankly, means that politicians and others are going to say they can't agree. They, there is no consistent, and no scholarly consensus is really hard to achieve. Um, this is something that the government itself in its policy skills framework said uh, in terms of clarifying when um, the kind of golden circles of when evidence is likely to have most effect is when you get the coalition in the middle, coalescence in the middle of both the political will to do something, the political need to do something, good solid evidence, but also the means to deliver it. If you're trying to introduce reform in schools, it's, you might have the right idea, but have you got the teaching workforce to be, with the skills to implement that? And often the delivery bit takes years, as with early years uh, education, to train up enough early years workers to implement the high quality ed early education that you want to do. So you need to bring those things together. Um, you need to have the means of delivery as, as well as the bright idea and the evidence. So how to influence Whitehall? Um, various things I've listed here. The elite connect connections, the great and the good. And I listed here, you can boo and hiss at the various names there. Uh, prominent historians who appear to be quite influential, though you might wonder sometimes if it's more about you know, flattery for politicians and for those individuals in terms of how much actual influence they have. But Lawrence Friedman on the Iraqi Commission, Peter Hennessy, who pops up everywhere, Bognador on the uh, constitutional issues, and uh, more recently, Sharma, Canadine, and Fergus, and I apparently are advising Mr. Gove or have advised him on the history curriculum, though of course they all disagree with each other. So quite prominent, um, appear to have influence. Um, more humble souls, uh, it's possible to. Um, join advisory committees, the public appointments, these are all competitive appointments, you have to apply, it's all transparent and open, but there are a number of worthy bodies um, uh, that one can become a member of, but you may feel as historians perhaps you haven't got time to do all that sort of thing. You can have an influence there. Special and expert advisors. Um, special advisors are uh, more the spin doctors, but there are lots of expert advisors in government as well. These are jobs that one can apply for. Um, you can have quite an influence there in the education department. Tim Loinig, who's an economic historian at the LSE, uh, is now has been a, an expert advisor. Um, so there are examples where historians have worked within government departments and given advice. Um, the think tank route, very influential when governments are developing their manifesto, uh, parties are developing their manifestos before they get into government, working with think tanks, becoming thought of think tanks. That works in a number of areas of social policy. I don't know, there may be examples where historians have, have joined think tanks, uh, and they are quite influential in setting at least the initial agendas of government. The policy exchange, for example, has been very influenced on the current, on the Conservative Party within the coalition government, uh, Demos and IPPR on, on previous governments. Direct collaborations, I'm going to say a bit more about that, the, the seminars and the workshops that we did in education um, with history and policy, but also giving evidence to uh, departmental consultations and select committees is also a way, good way of having, evidence, uh, having impact. Uh, briefly on the collaborations we did over the last, what, three years, um, this was in the area of children's services. We found actually it was fairly neglectful in many ways that um, my colleagues and I were making lots of policies on these areas, but actually we knew virtually nothing about the history of that those areas. And it seems strange when you put it that way that we didn't think about that earlier, but actually this is where history and policy has got an important role because it seems odd that we consider all sorts of other um, social research evidence, but we never actually, unless we create these opportunities through workshops, 
look at why adoption policy and laws and legislation is as it is at the moment. We're trying to reform it, but why do we start with that? And interestingly, in the 1940s, there were very few laws covering adoption. Um, one of the, in the, one of the presentations, we, uh, the historian put up an advert, in the, uh, a copy of an advert in the Kentish Town Times, I think it was, said, if you want to adopt a child, come to Flat 4, Kentish Town Road, child available. That was it. That was legal, perfectly possible. Incredible now, isn't it, given all the, uh, the, the constraints around and, and uh, scrutiny around adoption, if you want to become an adoptive parents. But it's interesting to kind of see the trajectory of policies and see what influenced past decisions and learn from that. It's not necessarily to be bound by that, but actually to learn from that. We had a number of interesting um, seminars and workshops where historians came along to speak and give us um, an account of the history, and then that led to lots of discussions, and we can talk about the format for that in the discussion session. But some of the things, practical points I learned, and I hope some of my colleagues learned um, from those seminars, how they work, the tyranny of PowerPoint. And I say that's a double-edged thing. Interesting, I found, because the culture of the civil service is very into PowerPoint. Uh, everything has to be in PowerPoint, for good or ill. Historians were not, perhaps it's a generational issue, historians were not necessarily familiar with that, and some perhaps read out papers. That was not the way to communicate. So I'm afraid one has to play the game to some degree and have PowerPoint, although the best presentation was by Hugh Cunningham, who did a really good presentation on the histories of, of concepts of childhood, and all his slides were just four stereotypical pictures of, of childhood in different ages. So um, there are different ways of playing this. Active endorsement for senior officials to get people involved and to show that it's legitimate to look at these issues. Sometimes uh, policymakers feel a bit uncomfortable about looking backwards. Understanding the audience, the need. Um, I know this is controversial, but narrative, a bit of chronology and context, really important. You can't just dive into deep, complex historical debates and expect non-historians to understand that. Um, a feeling from when we did an evaluation of this that People in the department wanted to know whether the views that were being put across, across represented a consensus amongst historians or actually highly contentious. So they needed to know, a bit like on that uh, chart from Gormley, is there, a, is there a general agreement that this was so or is it highly contentious? Well, often it is highly contentious. We need to know that. Um, international contrast, quite often it's quite, it's, uh, poli policymakers are very interested in what help has happened elsewhere. So if you can bring in international examples and differences in contrast, that's really powerful. Um, interesting though for the historians, I think many of them found it difficult to engage with, well, felt it was outside their com comfort zone to engage with current policy uh, questions, yet that's what you know, the people they were talking to were most interested in, to, to reflect on those. So I think it's the ability to do that that um, I would encourage historians uh, to do more of, leaving time to debate and having follow-up material on websites. Excuse me. Um, I'd also encourage you to think about government consultations. I won't say too much about that. There's all the time government departments are consulting formally about proposals. It's just a list. There are 60, I looked it up on the website, there are 67 consultations in progress at the moment where they're asking people to submit evidence. Many of these won't be of interest to you, but it's worth looking, actually. Interesting, the Holocaust Commission there um, would be, I would have thought, very relevant to, by a, number, a consultation by number 10 would be relevant to historians, but um, issues on public libraries, climate change. So it's worth contributing to those. And evidence to select committees. Now, you're not directly, what you're, what you're influencing there is Parliament, but Parliament can be very influential on politicians. Select committees, uh, politicians don't obviously always accept what select committees recommend, but it is and has grown in the last few years, if um, many of you are, if any of you are 
political historians, you realise that the growth of select committees has, has uh, been enormous in recent years. They're much more powerful and influential and do some very major inquiries. And they take evidence. These are some of the current uh, evidence calls by the House of Commons Select Committee. I've given evidence to the Science uh, and Technology Committee on a number of issues. So these are, again, opportunities, and anyone can contribute evidence. And it's worth talking to the clerks to those committees to see if you can actually present evidence in person if they're interested, if you have a really key contribution. It's for them to decide whether they invite you, but they may do. Uh, but if not, you can always submit written, written evidence. And it is a way of influencing the policy process. I don't know how many historians currently do that, but again, it's something worth considering. That's the end. Uh, some uh, famous quotes about the relevance of history and learning from the past. You'll get a mixture of both those sceptics and, and enthusiasts within government. Some are very keen on history, but don't quite know how to use the evidence. Others, as ever, remain, like Henry Ford, much more sceptical.